And that is a statement or a prayer that you could pray and remind yourself of on a daily basis. That there's nothing you could ever do that would make God love you more. And there's nothing you've ever done that makes God love you any less. And when you, uh, if you, this is new to you, you're welcome to go back uh, on the website. You can catch up on last week's sermon. But hopefully it was incredibly encouraging to you that all of our striving and all of our work doesn't gain us any merit in the love category with God. That He already, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, loves you as much as He ever could, and there's nothing you've ever done that causes Him to love you any less. And I feel like, at least in my own life, there's an immense amount of freedom that comes from that. And so this week, we're going to cover a different aspect of the gospel prayer, and I'll share it with you, but I'd like to open us in prayer first. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die while we were still sinners and that he forgave us of all of our sin. Lord, we thank you that you paid our ransom. And Lord, we thank you that there's nothing we could ever do uh, to repay you. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives joyfully serving you as a result of the things you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that as we go through these scriptures this week, Lord, I pray that we would continually be in awe of how great you are And Lord, I pray that that alone would bring us joy and contentment. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. And so this week we move into a different aspect of the gospel prayer. There's four parts, not to spoil it. The first one I already shared with you, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you've done that can make him love you any less. And the second aspect of the prayer uh, is just a reminder of the gospel. uh, And it reads like this. I'll read it so that I get it right. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. This is one of the aspects of the gospel that based on everything that Christ has done for us, his presence and approval are all that we need for everlasting joy. Now, if you're thinking, "Mm, I don't know about that. There's other things that that bring me a great amount of joy. I want to start out this message by talking about uh, that little thing that we hate to talk about called idols. Right? All of us read through Exodus and we, we read through the Ten Commandments and we read the one that says, Thou shalt not have any idols. And we go, you know what? Got that one all taken care of. I don't have any wooden statues on my shelf that I, that I worship. Don't have any, uh, gods from, from my family history that we worship. Uh, we pretty much just worship Jesus. And truth be told, uh, we probably have more idols now than they had back in the day when they were worshiping little wooden figurines. And so I brought something with me. Uh, you may hate it when we're done with it. I hated it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a little test in transparency. We'll call it the idol test, right? And so if you're here like I was and you think, well, I don't have any idols in my life, let's just kind of run through a checklist real quick. This won't hurt too much. We're going to move through it pretty quick. But um, let's talk about this. What's the... What one thing most do you hope for in your future? Right? Because sometimes when we're thinking about our future, it can be an idol. What about your career? What about success? What about things like owning your own home? What about things like owning a second home? These can be all idols. What about marriage? Maybe you want to be married and marriage has become an idol. What about respect? Boy, respect can be an idol sometimes. I'll walk through some of these in a little more in depth, but there are a lot of things that people will sacrifice on the altar in order to gain respect from either their family or their colleagues. How about seeing your kids be successful? That can be an idol. How about just waiting 
in your latter years, hoping that your kids will be successful and that encompassing most of your prayers. How about what's the one thing you most worry about losing? Oftentimes, this can be a huge idol. What are things that you cling to because you're so afraid of losing them? What about your family? What about your job? What about the love of your spouse? What about the respect of your kids? What about that tricky little thing called your retirement? That can be an idol. Do you check the stock market more than you check your daily devotional life? Ooh. Are you more concerned when the market dips below 10,000 or are you more concerned when you're not walking with Christ? Huh. That, that, that was worthy of an amen. But anyways, <laughs> tricky question. I know I recognize we're in tough economic times and I hope that you see that all of these things that I've mentioned, you need. I need, like we need the love of our family. We, we really feel like we need for our kids to be successful. We need that retirement to last. Uh, but oftentimes these general needs often take the place as idols because we worship them instead of things that we should be worshiping in place. So what if you could change one thing about yourself right now? What would it be? Sometimes things that we want to change about ourselves become an idol. Would you change the way that you look? Would you lose 30 pounds? What about your marital status? Would you change it? Would you be married? Or would you be happier, maybe not married? Maybe, come on gang, loosen up, right? Loosen up. This is, this is, this is supposed to be interactive here. What about your job? What if you, what if you could change one thing about yourself? You'd change your job and that has become an idol. What about your zip code? What if you just wish that you could break free from Bertie County? That, that gets a laugh and the other ones don't? Come on. You guys. You guys. All right. So when you can't imagine being happy without something, that becomes an idol in your life. So if you're here and you're, you're, you're starting your careers and you go, man, if I could just break free from Bertie County and get to the rest of the world, I'd be happy. If I could just be married, I would be happy. If I had just married someone else, I would be happy. Like all of these things can become idols. What's the thing in your life that you've sacrificed most for? Like we all living in Eastern North Carolina understand hard work and dedication. You want something? Work for it. Uh, I was with somebody one time and my son came up to me and said, Dad, can I have a four-wheeler? And my immediate answer was, yes, you can have a four-wheeler, son. And he was like, really? He said, yes, save your money and buy yourself a four-wheeler. And the person was like, wow, that was really mean. I said, no, that's the truth. Uh, you want a four-wheeler? Work hard and buy yourself a four-wheeler. And that resonates with all of you, hopefully. Like, you don't just give somebody something. You work hard for it. So what are the things that you've worked hard for? Maybe you worked hard to get a scholarship when you were going through school. Maybe you work hard to look a certain way. Maybe you worked hard to land that perfect job. Maybe you're working hard right now to be the best in your field because you want that respect. You want that recognition from your colleagues. Maybe you've worked hard to get a certain income level. Maybe that you, you see that in order to be uh, content and satisfied in life, you have to be at a certain income level in order to have that joy and satisfaction. Oftentimes, all of these things can be idols in our life. Who is there in your life that you can't forgive? You see, sometimes we can't forgive people 
because we feel like those people have taken things from us in our life. And because they've taken those things, we can't be happy anymore. Maybe they took a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe they took a spouse. Maybe they took money. Maybe they stole something. It could be anything. But oftentimes, those things take the place of idols in our life because they take the focus of all of our attention and they take our hard work and worship. How about this? When do you feel the most significant? Oftentimes, what makes you feel significant can become an idol in your life. And you go, well, what's that look like? What about, are you constantly mentioning your job because you want people to know what you do? Are you constantly mentioning your kids or your house or your car or your boat or all of these other things? This is how this plays out maybe like in my life. Am I getting my joy and satisfaction from you all showing up so that there's people here and that I can preach on Sunday morning? Right? Do you see how you coming here could be an idol for me? This is how it works itself out in real life. You know that a in the very, very back of my mind, a big fear would be none of you showing up on Sunday morning. Right? Not because Jesus came back, but because you decided you liked another church more than ours. Like if all of you left, there was no one here but my family. And the service was so lousy that my kids wanted to go to children's church because they couldn't bear to be in it. And so then nobody's here except for my wife. And to make this even worse, nobody's here but my wife, and she's listening to someone else's sermon on headphones while I'm preaching. Right? So you see how that this, this people showing up could be an idol if I allowed it to be? You see how my, my fear of everyone leaving and my wife being dissatisfied also in this church could be a fear? It's possible to do things so that none of that happens, and I make this, what's going on right here, an idol. And you have things in your, your life that go the same direction. And so what you do and what you have that makes you feel significant, oftentimes we cling to so hard that when we lose those things, that then triggers some sort of depression. And so I'm not making light of depression. It's a there, it, Depression has to do with chemicals in the brain and all of these things too, so I don't want to make light of it. But at the root of depression is that you lost something that you feel like you can't be happy without. And that leads you down a road of depression. And what the gospel prayer says is that the Lord's presence and approval are all we need for everlasting joy. And it's a reminder for us to be content with the presence and approval with God. And it doesn't say that all of these things that I've listed uh, are not worthy things, that they're not good things, but it means that we need to be more focused on the approval and the presence of God in our lives to find joy and contentment. And here's the last one. We do this with idols oftentimes too. What do you turn to for comfort when things are not going well? You have a bad day. Like the day starts out bad and gets nothing but worse. Ever had those Mondays where you're like, let's just take Mondays off from now on and just start work on Tuesday and maybe that'll solve all of our problems. Do you bury yourself in work? Maybe things go bad for you when you're home. Maybe your home life, and I mean this the nicest way possible, maybe your home life's a wreck, but you've got things at work under control. So you bury yourself in work so you don't have to deal with things at home. Maybe... 
you can't wait to get home from work so that you can get alcohol because that makes things better. I can just sit down in my chair, have a drink, and it'll make all of my problems go away. Maybe it's prescription drugs. Maybe you've justified your doctor's prescription and all you look forward to at the end of the day is taking the medicine so all of your problems can go away. I'm not making fun or or belittling any of these things, but I'm saying that sometimes these things take the place of functional gods in our life and they become idols. And it goes on and on and on, even if... I feel like we live in a culture that if your daughter is dating this boy that she likes a lot and he breaks up with her, we teach them to cope with that disappointment by going and buying them a gallon of ice cream and teaching them to eat the whole thing while they watch sad movies. Right? Anybody ever done that? I guess now that's not a, this is not a popular time to admit you've done that, right? But I feel like that's the culture that we live in. We, we do things and we teach our kids things to cope with things. And what we end up doing is giving them what we call functional gods or idols in their life. And we turn to those things for joy, contentment, and satisfaction instead of turning to the approval and acceptance of God in our life. You with me? Make sense? And so this, how does this, how does the rubber meet the road? If you turn to the book of James chapter four, Verse 3, this, the rubber hits the road when it comes to our prayer life. And James recognizes that. And in James chapter 4, verse 3, he says this. You ask and you do not receive. This is about prayer. You ask things in prayer and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Listen to what he says. He says, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so what God says, or what James says, is that when you pray, and you pray for God to give you the things that you worship in your life, the idols. And so you you have things that you're, you're worshiping functionally as gods, and they're idols in your life. When you pray for those things... It's like you bringing another person into your marriage relationship. And this is how it looks. God, please, please let me, uh, let me think of a good one. Please let me have a new car. Why do you want a new car? Because I don't like my old car and I can't be happy if I don't have a new car. Everybody else has a new car and I want one too. So God, please give me a new car. And the book of James says that You don't get a new car because you ask with the wrong motives. And because, he says specifically, I want to make sure I read it, that you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's like this. When you got married, you looked at your spouse and you said your vows. And you told your spouse that that's the only person you need for the rest of your life. That you're going to depend on them for all of the happiness that you need in marriage. You're going to depend on them for all of the sexual fulfillment you need in marriage. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And the two people make a covenant together that they are all each other needs. What if 10, 20 years down the road, you had a family meeting. And you got together with your spouse and you said, hey spouse... In order for me to really be happy, uh, we need to invite this other person into our marriage because that's the only way that I'm going to be happy. 
you think now, you think, whoa, Pastor, you've gone too far. You can't say that. But that's the exact same thing that, that the Bible is saying here. He's saying that we ask for things because we need and we feel like we need them to be happy. And so we're not satisfied in God and God alone anymore. We need those things. We ask God for those things. And he calls us adulteresses. And so if you or I are praying for anything to bring us joy and satisfaction outside of God fulfilling us, it's equivalent with spiritual adultery. Now, is it wrong to pray for things that are important to us? I would say no. But get the order here. C.S. Lewis says that when we put the first things first, that would be God. That God is supposed to be first in our life. That his presence and approval are, are, are all we need for everlasting joy. When we put God first in everything, he says when you put first things first, the second place things often fall into place. Right? And so he's not belittling the second place thing. He's just saying that when you put the first things first, and that's God, everything else, the second place things, have a tendency to fall into place. He says when you take the second place things and put them first, everything falls apart. That there's a proper order in which we need to do things. And we don't need to put the second place things in the first place spot. Because as soon as we put things, idols, in, in the first place spot, and we put God in second place, that is a tried and true method for the whole ship to sink. And it will not work. And so, let's go on to the book of First John. First John chapter 4. And so we need to be people who love God and we love him because of the gospel, right? There's no way that he could love us more. There's nothing we've done for him to love us less. That triggers a love then that we have for him. And then we also need to focus on this gospel prayer that your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. And so one of the things that, that Christians also often struggle with is fear, fear, worry, anxiety, all of these things. Why do we as Christians struggle with fear, worry, and anxiety? Well, it's because we oftentimes are afraid of losing our idols, right? So 1 John chapter 4 verse 18 says this. 1 John chapter 4 verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear cat Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And so this is how you as a follower of Christ can do away with worry, fear, and anxiety. You put your faith in Christ. You realize that he's forgiven you of all your sins. You come to grips with the first part of the gospel prayer that says there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you've ever done to make him love you less. Right? You come to grips with that. Like that rocks your world on a daily basis. And then you realize that the presence and approval of God are all you need for everlasting joy. And when you realize that the presence and approval of God is all you need for everlasting joy... Then you have contentment because people can take anything they want from you, but they can't take the presence and approval of God away from you. They can take your car, they can take your boat, they can take your house, they can take everything that you own, 
But you get this? God owns you and they can't take you from God. And so the presence and approval of God can never be taken from you. And if they take even your clothes and your family and everything, they can't take that. And we have got to be the type of people who are satisfied in the joy, or excuse me, in the presence and approval of God. And that's where we've got to put the source of our joy. And so we do this by realizing that Jesus himself is better than money. You go, well, Jesus doesn't pay the bills. Well, the scriptures are real clear that say that you, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And so every time you get that good and perfect, semi-perfect paycheck, you realize that that comes from the Father. You say, well, I get it from my job and other things. Well, when you read the scriptures, you realize that God put you in all of those places that you are. And so everything that you've ever gotten has come from God ultimately. He's the giver of all good gifts. And you realize that Christ is more valuable than any money. And that even if people take all of your money, the scriptures are real clear that say that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That he's got everything that you need and he can sustain you and take care of you. We've got to realize that Jesus is better than earthly pleasure. That the things that we strive for and strive for and strive for in order to gain pleasure, that Christ is better than all of those things. Christ is better than any earthly power you may have. Some people strive and strive and strive and strive for power. The power that Christ has is greater than all of that. Christ is better than popularity. You strive and strive and strive and strive to keep up with the Joneses in order to be popular so you can go back to your 20, 30, 40 year reunions and be the top person in your class and show everybody how much you've arrived. Listen, we serve a God who is infinite and I would much more be concerned about being popular with him than the people that we're surrounded by right now. Because one day you're going to stand before God and God alone and you're going to give an account to him. And it doesn't matter how popular you are with the people around you. What matters is your standing with him. And so hopefully you're seeing that we need to route our lives in a way that his presence and his approval are all we need for everlasting joy. And so if you go over to the book of Philippians, we'll turn there real quick. Philippians chapter 4, Paul finds himself in prison, right? So Paul's writing a letter to the Philippians. He's in prison. He's already said things like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And he's saying all of these things. And you would think that Paul being in prison would be a little bit bitter, a little bit uh, discouraged. And Paul gives the most astounding advice. This is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And this is the advice that he gives them. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. So this isn't coming from some rich prima donna who has everything that you could ever imagine. And he's saying, oh, just be happy in the Lord. Look how good he is. No, this is coming from somebody who's had everything taken from him. He's in prison in chains. And his advice to you is rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. So he doesn't just say it once. He says it twice so that you and I get the picture. And so how in the world can Paul have everything taken from him? Him be in prison and his advice be rejoice. It's because Paul realizes that your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. 
And so they can put Paul in a cold, damp prison with little to eat, no audience to preach to. And he can be joyful and satisfied because he knows that the presence and approval of God are all that he needs for everlasting joy. It's that simple. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's, that's getting deeper into that Jesus Christ died for your sins. We're getting deeper and deeper into the gospel. And it says that he is all that we need. So, if you keep going on. Um, sometimes it's difficult for us to remember that Jesus is all we need for everlasting joy and fulfillment. Sometimes that's difficult. Uh, I know a lot of you have difficulty seeing, right? Like you go to the eye doctor, he fixes you up for a little while, and then you need glasses after a little while, and then eventually you may not be able to see at all towards your latter years, and it's just frustrating, right? You just wish that you could see the things that you used to be able to see. Well, that same thing happens to us spiritually sometimes. Sometimes we, we get saved, right? And we realize that Christ is everything in our lives, and then the longer we live and the longer we go through life, the more sidetracked we get and the more our vision gets blurry and we take our eyes off Christ. I want to read you an uh, excerpt. This is a student uh, of Einstein. I don't know how much you know about Einstein, but Einstein was not a uh, professing believer in Christ. He believed that there, that there was a God. He was amazed at the magnificent of the universe around him. And a guy named Charles Misner, who was one of Einstein's students, said this of Einstein. The design of the universe is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religions. Although he struck me as a basically a very religious man, Einstein must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen more majesty than he had ever imagined in the creation of the universe and felt that the God they were talking about and couldn't have been the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the churches had run across, that the churches he had run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. So it says that Einstein, in all of his brilliance, was disgusted that the God people were worshiping on Sunday mornings was so small. And just think about this for a minute. If you or I don't want to belittle depression. Like, I'm not picking on depression. If you or I get mad at God because he took something from us that's special, don't you think that the rest of the world looks at us and says, wow, their God can't be but so big if they're upset about something so small. I don't want to belittle whatever may have ever been taken from you. But just think about that. If you're an outsider looking in, think about the reasons that people get mad at God. And think about how small our God must be sometimes to people outside the church. Sometimes we treat God like he's a disobedient genie. Like we're just supposed to be able to rub a lamp, ask him for things, and he gives them to us. And then when he doesn't give them to us, we put the lamp down and we stop asking him for things. And we just, you know, I'm, I'm through with that. But listen, Christ has already done more for you than anything that's ever been taken from you. Christ gave you his only son 
who didn't sin, who stepped down from the right hand of God and he died for you and I and he didn't deserve to. And then he rose from the dead and God has poured out his love towards you and I. And so if he doesn't do anything else for us, if everything in our life goes wrong, he has still done so much for us that we shouldn't be able to help but worship him because he's so great. And it should be that if everything goes wrong in our life, that his approval and acceptance are all we need for joy. He's already done way more than we ever could have bargained for. And sometimes we get mad when he doesn't do things that seem real big in the moment, but in the big picture are relatively small in light of eternity. And so if you go over to the book of 2 Corinthians... Paul talks about how to reorient our vision, right? If your vision gets to a certain point, you go to the doctor. Oftentimes, they can do some sort of laser surgery. They can correct whatever issue you may have with your eyes. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says this, But we all, with unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so he talks about us having an unveiled face. Then you go over to chapter 4, verse 3, and says this, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Paul talks oftentimes about people's eyes being blinded towards reality, right? That's why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, that's why he prays, I pray that you would understand the depth and the breadth of the love that God has for you. I pray that you would be able to make sense of it so that you can apply it to your life and be encouraged. We've covered that over and over again in the book of Ephesians, that Paul's prayer is that our eyes be opened so that we can see the things that God has done for us. You with me? And the reason that Paul wants us to, like, based on your reactions, you're like, you're not with me. Okay. And so Paul says that seeing, being able to see, gives you the ability To do away with sin. If you saw properly, if you properly saw how much God loves you and adores you, that would keep you from sinning. And so when you get glimpses of God, right, in your daily life, that's what keeps you from sinning. If you were to go to the book of Exodus chapter 20, we're not going to go there, uh, God gives the Ten Commandments. And so he calls Moses up onto the mountain and the people... See what's going on. And so Moses is in the mountain and lightning's going off all over the place. There's this real thick cloud and everybody's freaked out, right? Everybody's freaked out. And Moses says, all right, gang, God's going to speak to you. And the people go, no way, pal. We don't want to hear what he has to say. You go up there and talk to him and then you come back and tell us what he had to say. Because if he talks to us, we'll die. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, he comes back down from the mountain, gets, gives the Ten Commandments to the people, and at the end of him giving them the law, do you know what the people say? Everything you've said, we will do. Now, why did they say that? Because they got to see God. And when people see God, they fear God, and they naturally do what He says. 
Fear is a great motivator. And each of us should have a healthy fear of God in your life. And you go, well, fear doesn't keep you from sin. Walk, walk with me real quick down this journey. Let's say you're dating the most attractive person in school, right? You're back in your high school days. You've got your, your hot rod car that you still wish you had in the garage now. And it's just you and that one that you're deeply in love with. You can't think of anybody more attractive to be with on a Friday night. And you're sitting on the couch together, right? Nobody's in the house. Just you and that person that you're deeply in love with. You've, you've put on all of your, all the things that you know, you've got the, the soft music on the radio and things are just going great for you. And you're about to lean in and kiss that individual that you've had a crush on all through high school. And you think, boy, in the moment, passions are flowing and there's nothing that could stop what's going to happen. And then her dad comes home from a year-long deployment as a Navy SEAL to Afghanistan and he walks through the door. Do you think as a young man that fear has just eliminated all of the passions and desire for sin that he had? The only thing he's thinking at that given moment is I've got to get up out of here real quick. Same thing with our spiritual lives. When you realize that God is all you need for everlasting joy, that his presence and approval are all you need, it keeps you from sin because you realize how great God is. And God is exactly like that father who is an intimidator. And it keeps you. The only thing is, is that, yes, you should have a healthy fear of God, but God has got so much more good for you in mind that you don't want to upset him because you know he means good for you. Because he's told you in Romans that he works all things together for your good. And you could go on and on and on and on. Uh, I've already covered Exodus 20 for the sake of time, but brothers and sisters, sight breaks the power of sin. So that's why it's so important that we gather together and we worship together. That's why it's so important that we gather together and we break open God's word together. Because in the singing of songs and in the preaching of his word, we, you, should get a glimpse at who God is and how great he is. And that should be one of the things keeping us from sinning. And so... When we come to church and we realize how great God is, we sing songs about how great God is, that should be reorienting our lives to realize that, you know what, I don't need all of those other things in life that I enjoy. Like, I enjoy all of those things, but what I need in life is more of Christ. Because His presence and approval are all I need for joy. And so then when you found your joy in Christ... You can freely enjoy all of those other things that you like. And you can enjoy them more because you don't have to worry about someone taking them from you. Because if they take them from you, who cares? And so this is how it works itself out again. I'll close with this. Actually, i got a story that I'm going to read you to close with. But I want you to see a, a practical illustration. Let's say that you've worked your whole life for a boat, right? And so you've worked and worked and worked. You've, you've put God aside and now you're, you've got this boat, great, you got a boat. And so you put it in the Kashai River. And you can't go fast in your boat that you worked your whole life for because you might hit a stump and you might ruin your boat because that's what you've been working for. And you can't put it in the sound because you might not stay in the channel and you might rip the motor off your boat by running aground. And so you've worked and worked and worked for this boat and now you're afraid to use it because it might be taken from you. 
or you might break it. And you can't invite your grandkids on the boat because they might scratch it up. But you've worked so hard for it, and now you're crippled by it, and you can't enjoy it. The thing is, is if you enjoy Christ first, you can take that boat and drive it like you stole it. Because if it sinks, it's not your source of joy. If the grandkids scratch it all to pieces, it's not your source of joy. Christ is. You with me? Now, some of you are like, that was a bad one. You shouldn't use my boat as an illustration. But anyways, that's where I am right now. Listen to this last story. I'm going to close with this story. This is a a guy who served in uh, Southeast Asia. He says this. He says, one night while I was living in an Islamic country, I received a phone call from a man I had never met named Muhammad. Or Mahmud, M-A-H-M-U-D. He explained to me that he had a very important dream, and he believed that I was supposed to help him interpret it. In his dream, he had wandered aimlessly in an endless field. This field, he told me, seemed to him to symbolize his life. He felt alone, without purpose, true companionship or direction. After waking, after walking for what seemed like days, he heard a voice behind him call his name. There he saw a man who, in his words, was dressed in a shining white clothing. I could not look at his face because it shone like the sun. This heavenly man reached into the sash of his robe and pulled out a copy of the gospel and tried to place it in Mahmud's hands. This, the man said to Mahmud, calling him by name, will get you out of this field. Mahmud refused. Mahmud was a faithful Muslim, and he had no desire to possess Christian literature. He woke up in a cold sweat, heart beating quickly and felt and feeling very afraid. He said he felt as if he had rejected a prophet and did not know what to do. When he fell asleep again the second night, he found himself again in the field. Again, the man appeared, offering Mohammed another copy of the gospel. And again, Mohammed refused. The third night, when Mohammed went to sleep, the man was there waiting on him. This, and only this, he said to Mohammed, will get you out of this field. With trembling hand, Mohammed took the gospel from the man. Mohammed then said to me, My friend tells me that you are an expert in this gospel. Can you interpret my dream for me? And the guy says, no joke. That's what he said. Now, he says, I was raised in a very traditional Baptist home, and dreams or visions were not part of our standard religious repertoire. So I said, Mohammed, I don't believe in visions and dreams. This is a joke. Not really. I looked at him and said, brother, are you so in luck? Dream interpretation just happens to be my spiritual gift. And he said, for the next two hours, I explained the gospel to him. Though he still had questions... He didn't really doubt the answers I was giving him. After all, he'd been instructed by a divine messenger to listen. And he says, when I explained to him how Jesus had taken his sin on the cross, he said with tears streaming down his face, Allah, the creator God, dying in my place, can this be true? And he goes on to praise God. He says, it was obvious that he had believed. So I asked him if he would like to place his faith in Jesus. When he said yes... I asked him if he knew what such a commitment might cost him. Mohammed, I said, you might lose your job. You might get kicked out of your family. This commitment to Christ might even cost you your life. And he says, I'll never forget what he said next. He smiled and said, of course I know all of that. That's why it took me over a month to come and talk with you. Because I knew that if I became a follower of Jesus, it might cost me everything. And then he says this, but if Jesus Christ is God 
and God gave himself like that for me on the cross, I will go anywhere with him. If I lose my job, my family, or my life, it's okay. I'd go with Jesus anywhere. And brothers and sisters, that needs to be the cry of our life. That we don't need to be people who are seen as finding joy in all of these trivial things, but we need to be seen most as people who find acceptance and approval of God, and that's where we find our joy. And so I want to pray for us, and uh, during our time of invitation, if you want to respond in any way, maybe God has reoriented your life or the things that you put the most uh, importance on, uh, you know, he's open to listen. And the cool thing is, is that he's already forgiven you. But there's something to be said about making a public statement about reorienting your life. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be finished. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives and as we go through uh, our life, Lord, I pray that your approval and your acceptance are all we need for everlasting joy. Lord, I pray that we would be the type of people that are known in the community that if they took everything from us, we'd still be joyful because they can't take you. And Father, I pray that people wouldn't see us as worshiping uh, a bunch of little gods called things or idols, but that they see our faith and our hope in one God who created everything, who loves us and cares for us regardless where life takes us. And so God, I pray that um, where we failed you, that you would forgive us. And God, I pray that you would help us to reorient our lives in such a way Uh, where your approval and acceptance are all we care about. And so, Father, I pray now that there's anyone here who hasn't made sense of anything that I said, but they know that you love them and that you desire a relationship with them. Lord, I pray today that they'd be saved. And Father, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with us for our hymn of invitation. You're able to uh, put all of these things that we're talking about into your lives and see how they all work out. Because I tell you, uh, when you focus on the gospel day in and day out and use this gospel prayer as a thing to orient the way that you think and live, uh, man, it makes life a lot more relaxing. Uh, it really does. It makes it much more enjoyable also. Uh, before we pray, uh, someone dropped a tithe envelope and uh, it was picked up and put into the offering plate. And so if for some odd reason... Uh, you dropped a tithe envelope with money in it and didn't mean for it to go into the offering plate. Uh, let us know. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you dropped it and you were worried about it, just know it got to the right place. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Milton Tadlock if you would close us in prayer.